Um, Paul writing this letter, and uh, he is wrapping things up. And as we introduced last week, that in the beginning of chapter three, that Paul, as he has done in the previous chapter, he's kind of laid out again this identity this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who you are. Ultimately, this is who God deems that you are. And then he follows that up by praying. And Paul, once again, is in chapter two, he's laying out more of this identity, 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 identity. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. And then he goes to pray and gets distracted, right? And so we see in chapter three, verse one, as Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Then there's a big dash there. And you can just imagine there's this parentheses that takes place um, between verses uh, two through 13 before, as we'll get to next week, Paul actually does finally pray. And one of the things that if you're really good at English or if you're really good person um, during this time period in Greek, uh, some of the things that can get frustrating about Paul is because he does this. He digresses a lot. He chases a, a lot of rabbit trails. And so um, it gives me hope as a preacher because, and as a person because that is my, my tendency uh, to do so as well. And so to, even in today's uh, sermon, um, we're going to be hitting on several different kind of um, subjects that will all come together under one truth that, that Paul and ultimately that I believe that Jesus and, and most importantly um, through Jesus' word and what he is trying to say uh, to you and I this morning. So we talked about last week what it means for Paul to be a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles, that there was this mystery that was once kept from God's people, and uh, they were promised a Messiah, yet they did not know who that was. Jesus comes, so the mystery has been revealed. Jesus is the unsolved mystery. Um, as well in that is that, that God was going to do something through Jesus that had never been done before, that there was this very diverse uh, climate between the Jews and Gentiles. They hated one another, and yet we've seen through the book of Ephesians that God is going to unite those who were once far from God. Those who were once far from each other are now joined together. They are the temple of God. They are the people of God. He has created and not just resuscitated an old humanity, but he's literally created a new humanity. It's called a Christian, and when they come together, they form the church. So Paul in this says in verse 3, 6, um, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay? So Paul is, again, he's explaining this to his readers who are primarily Gentiles, um, that they are one, we are members of the same body, that we are the body of Christ, the people of God. And all of this is done through what? The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is creator, that man is not just fallen, but that we are spiritually dead. But God in his grace and his mercy has come to redeem a people. He has absorbed Jesus on the cross, has absorbed the full wrath of God. He became you and I sin. Because of this, he calls us to come and to die, to follow after him, and, and to be a witness and a blessing to the nations, all in hopes 
that one day he will return and fix all of this brokenness. So, so Paul is centered in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what propels his life. So if you're a big notator today, the first thing that we need to understand through um, this sermon and through these verses is this, is that the gospel is revealed to and through people. It's revealed to and through people. Okay, the idea of walking out here on top of a mountain in the middle of Utah and finding some good old golden tablets um, that God is going to give from some angels or some from people to a group of people and that not be found in his word, man, all of that stuff is a lie. Okay, the reality is God has given us his word and his, re- his word, the preached word, the shared word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to and through us as people. Look here in verse 7, which we'll begin covering here today. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. If you flip one page over in my Bible, it's one page over, to Ephesians chapter 1. If you remember from our very first sermon in this series, we talked about that Paul addresses this letter. And in the addressing of it, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. See, Paul wants to make it very clear, brothers and sisters, that Paul is not called to be a pastor. He is not called to be a minister. He is not called to be a church planter out of his own will, but it was placed upon him. God made him that. See, man cannot call the pastor. Man cannot call the missionary. God makes us those things. And Paul wants them to know in the, at the church at Ephesus that Paul was made this minister according to the grace and according to the, 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 the commissioning of God himself. Paul was commissioned to be a steward of this gospel. He was shown radical grace. As we've talked about several times inside of this series, that's why Paul is addressing this because he, he wants them to understand, let us not forget that the the greatest threat to all, the greatest single person threat against Christianity, all right, um, is Saul. In the history of all Christianity, the greatest single person against Christendom was Saul of Tarsus. And yet he has radically shown grace. He was a terrorist against God's mission and God's gospel and the person and work of Jesus and his followers. And now is stepped onto the scene who has been radically saved by Jesus. He was once blind, but now he sees. And the one who was the persecutor has, has now become the persecuted. And this is radical to see this picture of God working in this man's life. See, because of the gospel, because of the the understanding of the gospel, Paul preaches the gospel. Paul doesn't preach pop psychology. Paul doesn't preach, you know, do these three things and you'll, you'll make lots of money or you'll have a great marriage or, or your teenagers will be obedient. Paul is, 
is, it's not that those things aren't important, but in the list of priorities, there is a top priority, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul has been humbled by this. Paul, the chief of sinners, as he will call himself, he's the least likely of all the saints, and yet grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace have been lavishly poured out on him to preach the good news to those who are far from God. This is the gospel. It was by this grace, through this grace, that we were reconciled to God. That you and I, as, as well, we've been saved by grace. We preach grace. We preach the gospel. We are sustained by this grace. See, the only thing deeper than the gospel is God himself. And therefore, the gospel enables us to see, to glean in, to understand the greatness and the magnitude of our God. See, God comes to, the gospel comes to, and it goes out through people. Verse 8, he, again, he illustrates this. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. See, everything about Paul's life is about this gospel going forward. See, Paul does not see his job as a tent maker as a merely way of paying his bills. No, Paul understands his role as a tent maker or maybe yours as a teacher or a business person or a, a, a mom working in the home. Whatever it is, even children, teenagers, God doesn't see you going to school or to work as punishment. No, he sees that as an opportunity not to block off these hours in the day where you don't have have to be Christian, but no, God is sending out you as missionaries to your schools, to your jobs, in order that you would spread the gospel with your lips to a lost and dying world. We have gotten too wrapped up in the idea that it is merely about a paycheck. No, brothers and sisters, it is about eternity that you go to work. We're going to hit on that as Paul does here in a few weeks. So that's just a launching pad. Look forward to that day of talking about the gospel in the workplace. But that's the illustration that we see at Paul. Why, though? He's been changed by the resurrection of Jesus, by the gospel of Jesus. It's cool that when you look at this passage where it says, unsearchable riches of Christ. Um, in the original language, I'm told, because I'm not that smart, so I have to look this stuff up. But in the original language, it, 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 there, amongst scholars and Greek scholars, the word unsearchable there paints a really interesting picture. Um, back this last fall, many of you guys know I, I, I love to, to deer hunt. It's, I'm obsessed with it. I think about it. Um, I dream about it. Um, I am obsessed with, with deer hunting. And this last year, um, Trevor also enjoys doing that. And so Trevor and I, we went uh, deer hunting uh, together. And um, it was almost at dark. We've been surrounded by deer uh, most of the day, but there were some does that came in and Trevor was looking for a, a, a doe to eat. And so we had some come in and man, Trevor, he, he, he shot at this doe and we saw this doe get hit. Okay. And if you've never been deer hunting before, 
I'm trying to, let me help ladies out. Sale! Oh my goodness! It's on sale! You know that feeling you get? And you run toward the rack, all right? Maybe it's just one lady I know in this room. Okay? Um, that is what it's like in shooting a deer. My brother-in-law, Todd, he shot a deer this year. I mean, you just, we call it buck fever. Okay? You, it's like an out-of-body experience, is it not? I mean, you're just, your blood is pumping. And I know for some of you are lost as Easter eggs right now, okay? And so I'm trying to equate it to things um, that you'd understand. But you wait, and then you go and you track this animal, all right? Because they can run for, like, miles. So in tracking this animal, what are you doing? Take a flashlight because it was now dark. But you're looking for broken twigs. You're looking for blood. You're you are searching. In the original language, um, that word unsearchable means this. It, it literally means foot tracker. It means to be a tracker of something. Okay? That there is evidence laid out before us and that we, that Paul is commissioned to preach the unsearchable riches of his glory. It doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's not out there. The truth is out there, but it's this picture of us all tracking through our lives and through all of eternity as God unveils evidence after evidence. And guess what we won't ever come to? It'll never end. That, that God and his riches and his magnitude and his glory and all that he has for those of us that are in Christ. Guess what? All of eternity isn't a long enough time to unveil all of whom God is to his children. It is unsearchable. And yet he has left evidence for us. I believe that boredom is a sign of the fall. And it is something that I really struggle with. I can easily become bored as a person. And so a lot of times when I can think about heaven, if I think through, so through that lens, I can often think about man singing, Lord, I lift your name on high for like all of eternity. And how disgusting that really sounds to me if I'm quite honest. And yet, for those of you who maybe struggle as I do, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, may you be encouraged today. There is no boredom in heaven. But the glorious grace of God, His magnitude, His character, who He is, will forever be laid upon us, and we will constantly be wanting and knowing and searching and being at And so boredom will forever be gone away from as we seek to know who this God is for all of eternity, to infinity and beyond being with God. And yet Paul is, is commissioned, as I would say, that as we are commissioned to preach this same gospel to those around us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 through 10, it says, Paul is speaking, and he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not 
I, but the grace of God that is within me. The idea of being saved by Jesus and responding, as many of us do, in silence and solitude is completely foreign to Paul. It's completely foreign to the Scripture. That we've created this idea of mere lifestyle evangelism while keeping our mouths closed is a sign of not truly understanding the gospel. We talk about things that we love. We share important stories. We want people to know, and Paul was completely consumed with this grace. He is completely consumed with this gospel. The gospel has been revealed to him. It has come to him, and it is coming through him to other people. See, the gospel empowers us. The gospel fills us with passion and compassion for others. And when we understand the magnitude of where God has brought us from and where he is taking us to, then brothers and sisters, there is no greater mission for your life or for my life. It begs to ask the question, what impact has grace had on your life? Who are you telling? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you making disciples of? Paul had been changed. The gospel had come to him. The gospel had come through him to others. As we continue, the gospel, as it comes to us and through people, also the gospel is revealed to and through the church. To and through the church. Let's look at it here. In verse um, 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So not only does the gospel come to you, yes, personal relationship with Jesus. Is that true? Yes, okay, but it is not in and above the the corporate relationship that we have with Jesus inside of the gospel. The gospel is not only revealed to you as an individual, but the gospel is revealed to and through the church. The church. If you look inside of the New Testament, inside the Greek language, the word ekklesia means the gathering of the called out ones. It is the assembly, the family, the people of God who are called out. They are distinct. And Paul says here, he could have just said, Um, That it's this individual thing, and yet that is not what the Bible declares. The Bible says that it is so that through the church, through the called out ones, through the distinct ones, through the people of God, this gospel is also going to be propelled. It is going to be revealed to others through this church. When it talks about the manifold wisdom of God, The word picture that we get there is, it's the same word that is used in the Hebrew language when it talks about Joseph and his multicolored jacket that his daddy gives him. So when Paul says this about the manifold wisdom of God, he's talking about it being, again, multifaceted, that is 
multi-dimensional, that, that God's wisdom, his glory, all that he knows is going to be reflected and revealed in and through the church. Like a diamond that has been beautifully cut can be seen from all different angles. That diamond being God, that, that diamond being the gospel, that we as the church are called when we are being faithful and, and declaring that, that he is the Lord, that we want to be faithful to God's word, all of these sorts of things, that, that it, is, it is our responsibility and our joy to reflect who God is to a lost and dying world. So the thing, same calling that was placed upon Paul as an individual is the same calling that is placed upon the corporate body called the church. In, in, prep, in prepping for, for today, there, there was... Um, a slew of things that I feel like need, need to be said about this. Um, and I'm going to try myself to just pray that I, I would kind of refrain and because there is a time coming in the future with a sermon that I'm working on where I think that these things would be better said then. But I need you to hear me this morning. It, it is... It is impossible. I will be that bold in saying this. Brothers and sisters, friends, it, it is impossible to understand what it means to be a Christian apart from belonging to the local church. It's impossible. And yet that's where so many are. Even equating this idea of an attending a local gathering makes you a part of the local church. And it doesn't. See, do you think that the church is a big deal to God? Yes, He is. The church it's a really big deal to God. And yet my concern from, as one of your pastors, as a member here at Mission Church, is that, and, and a part of this thing called Western American Christianity, is that the church is not really that big of a deal to us. And yet the Bible declares, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. I hear this a lot. Man, I love Jesus, but hate the church. I had somebody who I, I deeply care about and love tell me yesterday, I'm a Christian, but I do not like Christians, and I do not like the church. I often wonder if, the, if what we say and how we treat the church if it's not often offensive toward God. 
I want you to think about it like this. Let's say this next summer that um, we're afforded the opportunity to send some of you ladies um, to go to Niger, Africa. And that, I want you to know that's our prayer. It's a heartbeat. We want to see that happen. Okay? And I'm praying. My, my wife wants to go, and I, I'm praying that she is afforded that opportunity to go. And, and let's just say for a moment that Pastor Todd is the leader of that group because typically we would still like to send probably a, a gentleman to go on that group. Um, plus he's, he kind of handles that for us as a church. But let's say that a, um, just for this case of illustration that Pastor Todd is, is the sole male on this trip. And it's his responsibility to, to lead this trip of which my, my wife is a part of. I am not there. I'm not, in, in missions, no, no news is good news, right? Especially when you're in Niger, Africa. There's not a lot of communication between what's happening there and what's happening here. But I'm placing within his arms the responsibility to steward and to protect who? Not his bride, but my bride. I have high expectation that he is not going to purposely put them in harm's way. I have high expectation that he is going to watch how he communicates to my wife. That he is going to put her and the other ladies, other wives, if husbands, if your wife was on that trip, would you not have the same expectations? We would. Or let, let's nail it on down. Grace is about to, in like 20 years, want to go out on dates with boys. And as that young jerk, you know, comes to the door, after he's called like five times asking this man's permission, if he can take Grace out, and, and he's done a background check, I mean, he's, he's patted him down, he searched his car, right? He's put a little bug on the car. He's known everywhere they're going. The expectation, right, is that that dude, that he takes care of my daughter. Or receive what? Death. <laughs> Death. I will kill you. Imprisonment will be a celebration of your death if you mess with my daughter or if you mess with my wife. The image that we see here in Ephesians, right, is that of stewardship. The gospel, grace, the church, is not our possession. It is the Lord's. And he said, steward it. And yet the question every one of us in here must ask is this, is how are you stewarding God's bride? And simultaneously, how are you stewarding his children? Because it is the collective nature of those children that make up the bride. 
See, if you don't love the church, you do not love Jesus. Jesus is showing it that those who were once enemies have been brought together. That we are a prized possession. That we are his bride, both the global church and the local churches, that we are the bride of Christ. And yet so many inside of these United States are trying to separate this idea of loving Jesus and not loving his bride. But no, the idea is we are, we are committed to this Jesus. See, I believe that a, a low view of the church it, and, and belonging to the local church, it, it really reveals a low view of who God is. Because if any of us, if I let you borrow something and I tell you, hey man, I want you to know this is like one of a kind. It's very valuable to me. It's been passed on from generation to generation. Now, I don't mind you borrowing it. If I told you that, would you not treat it with just white glove mentality? And I'm going to take care of this. The church is one of a kind. It is God's. It is a prized possession. See, we're called to love the church even with her imperfections. See, how many of us would think it would be deplorable of a man to leave his wife and on, as he is divorcing her and leaving her, these are the reasons why he says, you're just not as fit as you once were. You've gotten fat. You used to not have cellulite, but now you do. You're just not attractive anymore. Would anybody in here think that that's a deplorable, like disgusting man? Yes, hopefully you would think that. Because it's true. See, I, I, I believe that many of us are addicted to church porn. Instead of the loving the one that we are with and her imperfections and the, and the ways in which she does not reflect and honor and all these sorts of things, we can fall into the temptation of lust, lusting after a, a photoshopped image of what we believe the church is supposed to be, which is impossible this side of heaven. Just like a man lusting after a photoshopped, airbrushed image of a fantasy of a woman that does not exist. She has cellulite too. It's just airbrushed out. And yet we can find ourselves attracted, longing, lusting for this, this church that doesn't exist until glory comes. 
May we long for it? Yes. May we desire the returning of Jesus? Yes. But again, this side of heaven, bumps, bruises, rolls, acne, all these sorts of things that that messes up and makes the church dirty, that we love her, not a future version of her, but that God will enable us to love the church where she is right now. The church is not, the church is not a gym membership. Work out anytime. I pay them money every month. I signed a covenant with them. And they with me. And all I have to show it is this key tag. Many of us treat the church this way. We've signed on the covenant line. We got the key tag. And yet we don't belong. Sin, Satan, and death want to destroy the church. Are we not oblivious? are, Are we so reformed, brothers and sisters, that we believe in some way that Reformed theology has eradicated the spiritual realm in which we live in. Do you think that sin, Satan, and death wants the church to exist? Do you not think that it is just by mere coincidence that things like the, you know, uh, the sound is jacked up or the projector is jacked up or, or that for some reason you will be perfectly healthy and going to bed on a Saturday night and yet when the alarm goes off, you convince yourself that you're sick? That you get more sniffles on a Sunday morning? That for some reason we are more tired on Sunday mornings than any other day out of the week? That we can have more temptations to try to pull us to not gather with the saints or or to not attend an MC or to not share the gospel. That that your kids seem to become devil children before you come. Amen. That you can yell, scream, bicker in your minivan all the way here. And walk in and smile. The enemy does not want the church to exist. The enemy wants the church to be silent. The enemy, brothers and sisters, inside of America, the church's greatest thing is not explosion by bombs, but it is implosion from the inside out. We must, I must confess, it is really easy to become a pew critic of what's happening inside of the church instead of participant of it. I always get really freaked out when I meet brothers who have been like members of every church in our town. I always get really freaked out when people seemingly 
know everything that they should be doing inside the church, yet they've never been a pastor. They've never committed their lives to this. If you were to ask them simple questions like, man, what's your prayer life? Who are you discipling? It's no, 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 no. But man, they know everything and anything about what's happening in church and what should be happening. Do you not think that that's not what sin, Satan, and death wants to happen? They don't want us to belong to the church. They want to destroy the church. And in destroying the church, destroy its witness. So that the that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may be known through the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, the issue is, is that sin, Satan, and death wants us to be dysfunctional. It wants us to be unfaithful. It wants us to lose our way. It wants us to gossip. It wants us to slander. It wants us to do all of these things. Why? So that it would tarnish the revealing that should be coming through the church of God's manifold wisdom that, that, that the world around us goes, I cannot believe that those people our family. See, this is, is so big that through the church, the gospel goes to the nations. Why is Paul doing this? I'm preaching to the Gentiles. It's spreading to the nations. But brothers and sisters, do you not understand that our faithful witness as the collective body, as the church, also affects the heavenly realm? Now, there's some debate on where it says the heavenly uh, uh, rulers known to the authorities, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. There's some debate. Is this talking about to the angels or is this talking about to the demons? I rest in between those things, I actually think that it's talking about both. See, I think when the church is being faithful, you know what happens in heaven? There is celebration as one person comes to know who Jesus is, as he saves one enemy and makes him a son, that literally the angels in heaven are rejoicing at what they're witnessing as they're in awe. They do not know all things. They are watching this thing play out. And Mission Church, when we act like a biblical church, when we are faithful to the church, that I believe since the cross and resurrection of Jesus, that party has never ceased to stop as they have watched over and over, day after day, moment after moment, as everybody from California to Japan, as God redeems and arrests hearts, they celebrate. On the flip side of that, when we collectively are faithful as the church, the demons themselves are shuddering are shuddering. They are trembling. They believed as they did on the cross that they had won. And yet on Sunday morning when Jesus is resurrected, they begin to shake at the realization that we have not won, but that we have lost. So every time black and white people, Asians, Dominicans, all these people, as we get together, as the diversity of political realm, as the shapes and sizes, the people of God, as we come together as this multi ethic, multifaceted, multicolored group of faithful people pursuing God, that the enemies themselves tremble at what they get to see. So is the church a big deal? Yes, the church is a big 
deal. Brothers and sisters, we see that through the church, and we need to understand this, if you're new to mission, the reason why we named Mission Church Mission Church was that it's not our name, it is our identity. It is who the church is. As I got up this morning, I was stalking you guys on Facebook and came across Katie who was quoting Tim Keller who said this morning, a church should not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be a mission. See, mission is not something we do. It is who we are. And that's why Paul even places it in this identity section. He's not even talking about going and doing these things yet. He's saying you cannot not be this. This is who we are. We are the mission. We, it, 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 it defines us as a people. And so to not be engaged in missions is to not be the church. The church isn't like a family. Again, the church is the family. It is the fellowship. It is the body. It is the bride. It is the people. It is the temple. Last thing in closing, and where I was hoping to, to gear all of this toward today, is that we've learned that the gospel is revealed to and through individuals that the gospel is revealed to and through the church, but also that the gospel is revealed in our suffering. Notice what Paul says here at the end. Verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. If you've ever had to experience much suffering inside of your life, one of the most trying, difficult things about suffering as a Christian and where sin, Satan, and death would like to lead us is to the place of where we believe that God is no longer good. That God no longer is trustworthy. That God's promises may be for others, but they are not for me. See, I believe that this is what's taking place inside of this part of Ephesians. When Paul says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. See, the question that is happening inside of Ephesus is this. How can a man of God like Paul, how can he be suffering like he is? How if... if if Paul is faithful, how can he be the one that is being put into prison? A physical prison. They begin to, to question. I, I, don't, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing because if, if we're comparing, Paul is like way up here and I am way down here. And so if, if he is in prison, then there's a, a lot of brokenness coming for me. There's a lot of imprisonment coming for me. There's a lot of punishment and discipline and all these sorts of things. I don't know that we can trust one. I don't know that we can trust Paul. Maybe he's got sin in his life 
and he's secretly really shady and a false teacher, or, or maybe if he is faithful, I don't know about this Jesus thing. I thought following Jesus, we could trust him, that he is faithful and that his promises and that he has plans. As Jeremiah, we love to twist that verse and say that he has plans not to harm us and to prosper us and all these sorts of things for us. See, it is when, in the midst of our suffering, when our greatest doubts come to the surface. Our suffering comes to the surface. This is one of the, the biggest things for Muslims that they can't believe that Jesus is the Son of God because there is no way that God would allow his greatest prophet at that moment to ever suffer in those ways. And yet, though many of us are not Muslims, many of us practice those same sort of thoughts, especially if you're suffering. Now, I want to be very clear here. There's lots of different aspects of suffering. There is suffering because of your own sin. Anybody experienced that before? We call that dummy tax. Right? You got suffering. Some of you got scars. Right? You got tattoos. Anybody got tattoos that you wish you didn't have? Dummy tax. Right? You've woken up in ditches. You've woken up in places you wish you had not been. Okay? That's suffering because of your own sin. Because of my own sin. There's, there's also suffering because of the sin of others. You were in the good. I think about a child who's been abused by an adult. That child was not asking for this. They were not calling out for this. They did not desire this. But suffering came to them at the hands of a sinful person. Anybody experienced that? There's also suffering because the world is broken. We call these things acts of God. They're not a beyond God's will and purpose and plan, but they're just some things that happen. Like we're all going to die. Sin has affected it. It's broken our world. I don't know why sometimes tornadoes can hop over houses. We live in a broken world. People get cancer who have never smoked a pack of cigarettes. We live in a broken world. There is suffering that comes to that. Anybody? This one's a little bit more difficult. There is suffering because God wants to draw you to himself. Sometimes cancer will come to you because of your own consuming of chemicals or cigarettes these sorts of things. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, disease may come and it is not because of some sin or consuming of things on your life. It is literally from the hands of God. And all of that, He is using to draw you to Himself. And that, again, that's tough. There's also 
suffering that will come to you, not for sin, but for obedience' sake. And a lot of times when we come to the Scripture, we will see it through all suffering, through all of those other lenses, and we will try to apply them to those passages. But I want you to be good Bible readers. Many times when Paul and the New Testament writers are talking about suffering that is coming to you, it is not because of sin. There's a place for that. It's not because of disease. There's a place for that. It's not because of discipline. It's, there's a place for that. But the primary thing that we see in regards to suffering is because they're doing what is right. And we often don't think of it that way, nor do we want it. Yet this is what Paul is coming to. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Again, Paul is a prisoner of Jesus, but where is he physically? He's in prison. Why is he physically in prison? Because he keeps preaching the gospel, because he is obedient. And so Paul is telling these New Testament churches, I mean, imagine here this week if all of a sudden we, we, we go and, and, and Fred is no longer with us. And we ask Miss Connie, where, where is Fred at? Well, Fred was dragged out of our home this week because he would not stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and they've killed him. That's the early church. That's suffering for obedience' sake. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to have friends and family come against you. You know what it's like to have slanderous things said about you or your families or the truth that you're spoken or people saying that you're foolish. And, and maybe the sword has not come, but there is definitely relational persecution that has come to many of us in this room, not out of sin, but out of obedience. And for some of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that concerns me. That's concerning. See, brothers and sisters, one of the marks of true fruit, of true salvation, true discipleship, is suffering because of obedience. And it's interesting talking to people who are physically persecuted as we do when we talk to our, uh, our brothers in Niger. Is they don't ever say, pray for us that the persecution would end. They say, pray for us that we will be faithful in the midst of persecution. And even some of them, I've had conversations with them, and they've alluded to, but they didn't want to say this out loud, but they hinted around it and danced around it, that they are in some way praying that more persecution would come to America. Why? Brothers and sisters, we were saved through somebody's suffering. We will 
served and have been served through someone else's surfing, suffering. We, we've been sanctified through someone else's suffering. The church is born through suffering. The church is multiplied through suffering. Every time they try to kill us, I mean, we just multiply, 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 multiply. Why? Because there's no greater cause than the cause of Christ. We are here because the church before us died and has left this legacy. Literally, you take the Bible that is sitting next to you right now and you grab a hold of that because the reason why you have it in English where you can actually understand it and read it is because a bunch of men and women were burned at the stake to get it into English. And yet we throw them on our dashboards and just think nothing about using them more as a coaster for our coffee than the actual word of God that people have shared their blood to simply get this into generic American English redneck so we can get it all through suffering through suffering when I think about Paul's suffering if, if uh, real quickly, let me just kind of give you some things. When I think about Paul's suffering up to this point, this is what the Bible tells us, that this man has been five times received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. That means this time, man, five times has been beaten. This is Paul speaking. This is Paul, what's happened to Paul. Five times Paul has been beaten, 39 lashes five times. Most people don't live through one lashing. Yet this man has been beat to death. By the time that he's this age inside of this prison, can you imagine what his back looked like? It was a solid piece of scar tissue. And that's not the image that we often have of Paul. Once, oh, excuse me, three times he was beaten with rods. You ever been hit with a switch? We don't do that anymore. Kids, back in the 80s, go pick out a switch, right? That thing hurts, okay? Three times this man's been beaten with rods. He was once stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Listen to this. A night and day I was adrift at sea. Does that not scare anybody in here? You'd think one shipwreck is bad enough. Three I mean, I'm shaking my fist at God at this moment. Imagine floating all night long at sea. On frequent journeys, in, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, damer, dan, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, and hunger and in thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me and anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak? And I am and I'm not weak. Who is made to, to fall? Am I not indignant? I, if I must boast, I must boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father, the Lord Jesus, he is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under the king Artis uh, was guarding the city of Damascus in the order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and escaped the, his hands. I had a professor ask me after looking at this passage one time, 
discussing this issue, what Paul must have looked like. Even we, in some of Paul's letters, right, that it appears that Paul can't write very well. I mean, it's possible that his hands are all drawn up, that he has to write really big because maybe his eyesight isn't as good. And after describing this kind of, you know, hunchback of Notre Dame that could possibly bend Paul at this picture, that he is, he's definitely been beaten, he's been broken, he's been drugged by a chariot, he's been left for dead, all these sorts of things. And my professor looked up from the Bible and he asked us all in the class, he says, you say you follow Jesus. Show me your back. Show me your back. Show me your back. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Jesus, great sermon on the mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. It doesn't say for being a jerk. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all things of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Paul's suffering was used to reflect Jesus. And we are the recipients and the benefactors of those truths. That we're obedient. We love Jesus. It's who we are. It defines us. And why is Paul able to do this? Because Jesus is the ultimate suffering Messiah. Jesus was obedient, and, and this obedience caused him to leave his kingdom to become homeless. Jesus' obedience caused him to be mocked, ridiculed, and falsely accused. Jesus' obedience caused him to be relationally abandoned by his family and friends. Jesus' obedience caused him to be stripped naked before a crowd. Jesus' obedience caused him to be beaten to the point of having his skin look like it was melting off of his back like hot wax. Jesus was obedience, and this obedience forced him to carry a heavy wooden beam across and through the center of town. Jesus' suffering obedience forced him to wear a crown of thorns that was placed firmly upon his head, penetrating his skin. Jesus' suffering obedience nailed him to a cross. Jesus' suffering obedience led to him suffocating on the cross. Jesus' obedience led to him having a spear rammed into his side, and yet but, but none of this compares to the suffering obedience and the weight of sin and the di- divine wrath of God that was poured upon Jesus as his holy, righteous punishment poured upon him in our place. In our place. I'm mesmerized when we see the resurrected Jesus. In John chapter 20, it says this, the disciples were gathered and locked in a room because they were scared. And Jesus suddenly appears, peace be with you. When when they had said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his sides. And the Bible tells us, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus says to them, for the Father sent me, I am sending you. See, I'm I'm so mesmerized that, that 
in the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrected body of Jesus that God enabled and allowed the scars to remain. And even his disciples, those scars from suffering, and when the disciples want to know, man, is this the real Jesus? What is the proof? What brings joy to their hearts is they are able to see the scars in his hand and and the, the scar on his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Later in that same thing, it's, uh, it's Jesus and, and Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, when, when we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe, Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Because suffering scars led to life. Unless I see the evidence of suffering, the suffering Messiah, I will not believe. And that's exactly what the disciples, that's exactly what Thomas saw, was they saw the evidence that our Messiah has called us to suffer, and yet he has not called us to do anything that he is unwilling to do himself. Get this this morning. There is something worse than your physical suffering, brothers and sisters. It is our spiritual suffering. And for those of us in Christ, you will never taste it. You will never taste the eternal suffering that you deserve. You will never even get a drop of it on you. Why? Because it has all been placed upon Jesus. So may we, Mission Church, not lose heart if you are suffering because of obedience. But may we rejoice because we are like Jesus who's taken the ultimate suffering that should be poured upon us because of our sin, and he has drank it all. And you never will. That's the gospel. And that propels everything. Let's pray.